Well, good morning, fellowship. How are you this morning? Good. My name is Mike, and uh, I've met many of you before. Uh, I'm a a frequent attender over at the uh, Brentwood campus. I've been a member there since 2002, and I'm normally over there at 8 o'clock on Sunday mornings. Um, But Rob invited me to speak to the, uh, the Franklin campus this morning, and I'm very grateful for that. So pleased to be with you today. As we get started into today, I want you to be thinking a little bit about history. Um, I was never a great student in school. Uh, I was lousy at English. Uh, I was terrified of math. I was not very good at the sciences. Uh, I did great in phys ed, and I really loved certain subjects like history. For whatever reason, I was just enthralled in the classes I took on history uh, when I was in university. There's times when you look at events in our past, uh, and you can look at people or specific events, and you can kind of tell in the moment that something occurs that the world will never be the same again. You can tell kind of in the instant that the world is forever changed. Uh, It's just evident when the event happens. An example of this might be uh, the atomic bomb being dropped on Japan in the Second World War. Boom! Boom! 80,000 people virtually incinerated in a moment, right? You could tell when that happened, man, the world is a different place after today. And yet there are other times throughout the history books where you look at an event and you cannot tell in the moment that this is going to be uh, a world changer. You can't tell right away that, uh, that there's a seismic shift about to happen because sometimes these historic events that we look back on that are world changers, they can, they can start kind of small. They can start almost quietly, but they will grow and escalate, almost setting off a chain reaction over time. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, In the year 1914, uh, a man was assassinated. His name was Franz Ferdinand. Uh, He was the heir to the throne of Austria. And one bullet was discharged at this man, killing him. Uh, But This singular event, this one bullet fired at one man, would set off a chain reaction of events where 29 countries would declare war on each other. And by the time the dust settled on this event, five years later, 41 million people would have either died or been injured in the battle that we call World War I. But it didn't start as a world war. It started with one bullet and it escalated. Another example of this, uh, would be in the year 1440. There was an inventor. His name was Johannes Gutenberg. Uh, the name might tell you where I'm going with this, but he was tinkering in his workshop, and he was kind of frustrated by the fact that whenever books had to get copied, that someone had to get out their pen and write out line by line by line, a very slow, arduous, and even an inaccurate process to transmit copies of books. So what did Gutenberg invent? The printing press, Right? And this is in the pre-electronic age, but you can think of this as the equivalent of the creation of the internet. That's basically what happened. Information and knowledge could be transmitted like this compared to how it could be done before. This invention completely changed the world. In fact, this is considered one of the top five world-changing events was the creation of the printing press. Another example, in uh, 1517, there was an angry monk who took issue with some of the abuses that he saw in the Roman Catholic Church. His name was Martin, 
Martin Luther, you can tell by his stylish haircut and his progressive wardrobe, that uh, he took matters into his own hands and he recorded these frustrations he had, these abuses that he felt like he saw in the Roman Catholic Church. And he listed them. There were 95 of them. He called them his uh, theses or the protestations. And he hammered them to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral in Germany. Functionally, he was challenging the Roman Catholic Church to an academic debate. He wanted to clarify with them and for them to see that they were operating against their own book, against their own code of conduct. Do you think Martin Luther thought when he was pounding these 95 theses into the door, do you think he saw a reformation? Absolutely not. But this one event, this one nail pounded into the door, listing objections, would become the reformation. This year we celebrate its 500th year anniversary. But this event would shudder throughout Europe. It would be like an explosion all across Europe. But it started with one nail. Now we could look at the history books and probably find lots of different examples of events like this. Events that uh, had a huge impact on the world but started small. Fellowship, we're going to look this morning at one singular historical event. One event that eclipses all others in the history books in terms of its significance and in terms of its impact on the world. And like some of these other events that we've mentioned, this one also would start rather small, almost like a whisper, but it would become an explosion that would reverberate throughout the entire Mediterranean world and even its ripples would be felt today, right? The historical event that we're talking about is the focus of our text this morning. We're going to be looking at the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Before we dive into our text, I want to let you know uh, the significance of this event. The resurrection is truly singular from a doctrinal importance perspective, okay? There's a lot of things that we believe to be true about Jesus and some of our fundamentals of our faith, but the resurrection does not have an equal in terms of its importance, You can flip in your Bible if you want to, but I'll take you just really quickly to 1 Corinthians 15. You don't need to go there, but I'll just kind of walk you through what Paul says about the significance of the resurrection, okay? 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 14, Paul says this. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. It goes on to say a couple verses later that if the resurrection didn't happen, then we of all people are most to be pitied. We're a sad lot, us Christians, if the resurrection didn't happen. Translation, if there is no resurrection of Jesus, then he was a false messiah. If he's a false Messiah, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no salvation in Christ. In fact, there's no Christianity We may as well figure out something else to do on Sunday, right? Guys, the resurrection, from a doctrinal perspective, is the whole ballgame. We base everything on the historical validity of the event that we're looking at today. Let me pray briefly, and then we'll dive into Mark 16. Father, as we look at the resurrection this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see with great clarity the significance of of this most important event in all of history. Lord, it's a privilege to be able to be your mouthpiece this morning. And Lord, I just ask for your favor so that I would communicate well, that I'd be open to your Holy Spirit guiding me. And Lord, may we meet you here this morning 
so that when we leave after our time together, we can be changed by the truth of this most incredible moment in history. It's in your name, Lord, that we pray. Amen. All right, as you open up your Bibles to Mark 16, I want to give us a little context. Uh, I believe it was Lloyd that was here with you last week, and when we finished off Mark chapter 15, what happened was that Jesus was on the cross and he breathed his last, all right? He pleaded to his father in his final breath, and he breathed his last, and he died. We know that he died because the centurion validated the death, right? And then Pilate inquired of the centurion to confirm that Jesus had, in fact, died. Remember, these people knew how to kill folks, right? This was, this was their job, okay? Jesus' body comes down from the cross, and it's entrusted into the care of a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. This is, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, you can think of the Sanhedrin as being like the Jewish Supreme Court. There are 70 members, and they presided in Jerusalem, all right? Joseph asks for the body of Jesus, but he quickly has to get it into the tomb because it's already evening. What happens sundown on Friday night in Israel? The Sabbath, right? So they have to kind of in hurry up fashion, get Jesus into the tomb and close the door because once the Sabbath begins, not only can you not touch any unclean dead body, but there's no, you're not allowed to do any work. There's all the stores shut down. It's, it's still mode in Israel, okay? And this happens on, on Friday night, okay? This gets us into uh, Mark chapter 16. One last tidbit uh, regarding last week's text. There was a group of women that were watching as Jesus was put into the tomb, and they were mentioned in our text this morning. Okay, Mark 16, verse 1. It says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. It's roll call time. These three women are being named again. Now, the way that we go through the book of a Bible, we kind of take small sections and little bits, and so you may not see the repetitive nature of this verse. But if you look back just two paragraphs... You'll see that these women are named in uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 40, verse 15, verse 47, and now again in verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 1. They are mentioned three separate times, which for the shortest gospel in the Bible, the one with the least amount of detail, is actually kind of unusual. Mark spends the least amount of time giving descriptions of things, but here these women are named three times. It's kind of odd. What is Mark up to? He places the women at the cross, when Jesus dies, he places the women at the tomb when it's being shut, and now he's placing the women on Sunday morning heading to the tomb. He's making basically a legal defense, an eyewitness testimony of the events that he's about to describe. Okay? These women almost certainly would have been alive at the time of Mark's writing his gospel, and he's basically saying, go check it out for yourself if you want. Here they are. Okay? What are these women doing? Well, it says they've bought spices so that they can go anoint the body of Jesus, okay? Remember, they couldn't buy spices Friday night. It was the Sabbath. They couldn't go on Saturday, right? You're not allowed to move around during the Sabbath. So they're literally going into action as soon as they're able to, which is on Sunday morning. Jesus has been dead now for a couple of days. The fact that they're going to the tomb on Sunday is itself unusual, okay? What happens to bodies that have been dead and have been put into the grave after a couple days? What begins to happen to them? They decompose. I heard someone over here say stinks, right? Bodies begin to decay very quickly, especially in the Middle Eastern heat. 
You might recall that story from the Gospel of John uh, when Jesus approaches the grave of a friend of his named Lazarus. Remember this story? And Lazarus had been dead for a few days, and as Jesus approaches the tomb wanting to open it, uh, Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, very quickly object and say, no, 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 don't. Why? John eleven thirty nine. But Lord, he stinketh in the King James, right? I'm not normally a fan of the King James reading, but that's awesome. I just love how that reads. But Lord, he stinketh. These women are going to open up a grave that's been sealed for a couple days. What can you expect? Same thing. So, The fact that these women are still willing to go anoint the body when the process of decay and decomposition has already started is kind of unusual. But it's the loyalty of these women. It's the love of these women. It's the devotion of these women that prompts them to render this last act of service to their master. And so they're going to do that, which from a practical perspective seems kind of useless. All right, let's move on in our text. Verse 2. It says, very early on in the first day of the week, which is Sunday, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Remember, these women saw the tomb sealed uh, a couple days earlier, but it's not until they're already on their way to the gravesite that they have the conversation about, oh yeah, problem. We've got to figure out how to get this tomb open so that we can do the work that we want to do. They're clearly grief-stricken because they're not thinking very clearly. Verse 4, looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away even though it was extremely large. Just to get some perspective on how large these things are, I think we've got a photo we can look at here. When you go to Jerusalem and you look at sort of these grave sites that have been hewn into the landscape, you see how these things are sealed. These tombs are massive and the stones are extremely heavy. That stone is estimated to weigh between one and three tons. Even if these three women were Olympic weightlifters, they're going to have a hard time getting that thing open. But when they get there, the stone had already been moved. Verse 5, entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. The women are expecting to find a dead body. But rather than find a dead body, they discover that the body's missing, and now instead there's this angel sitting where Jesus is supposed to be, right? So the women's response is that of shock and amazement, and that's, that's probably pretty understandable. The angel does his best to uh, bring clarity to the situation. I'm not sure if he's responding to the women's body language or the shock on their face or what, but he kind of anticipates the women's questions and concerns, uh, the pro- women are probably thinking, are we even at the right place here? Did, did, did we not see this clearly the other day? Are we at the right tomb? Where's Jesus? Who the heck are you? Right? There's all kinds of questions. And so the angel preempts with the response. Oh, you're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. See the place where they laid him. The angel is saying, you've got the right address. You're right where you're supposed to be. But then the next words from the angel are awesome. Three words he says to the women that have become the greeting for believers everywhere every Easter since this first one. He says to them, he is not here, he has risen. The 
central event, the most significant event in all of history now confronts the women. He has risen. But you have to assume that the full weight of this doesn't quite resonate with them in the moment. I think whether it be you or I at the, at the tomb this morning or whether it be the women, I think we would have been a little deer in the headlights trying to swallow the implications of this, trying to understand it. There's no way you could have understood the significance of this in the moment, but let's just talk through some of this right now. All we see in this world is entropy. We see the gradual and progressive decline and deterioration of things over time, Right? Stuff just wears down over time. I need look no further than my hairline. When I get, look in the mirror to get ready for church on Sunday morning to realize entropy is going on in my 40s. Right, I'm not confused about this. Okay, But Christianity claims that Jesus has reversed the natural order of things. Right? The tomb is not just empty. Jesus is not just missing. Right? No one stole the body which was actually the Jewish cover-up story. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, you see that the guards received a bribe to start the rumor that the disciples had stolen the body. But the angel refutes this. The angel says, nah, he's not here, he has risen. That means he came back from death to life. Okay? This has huge implications. Perhaps the laws of aging and entropy are not quite as ironclad as they appear. Perhaps they are subject to a higher authority. Now, if this is true, then death itself may not be what we thought it was. If death wasn't the end of life for Jesus, then maybe it won't be the end of life for you or I either. In fact, maybe it's only the beginning. More on this later. Let's go to verse 7. The angel tells the women, go, Tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. The angel's decree is go tell his disciples. Whose disciples? His disciples. By the way, do you know where his disciples are on this particular Sunday morning? Mark doesn't tell us, but we can learn from the other three gospels. The disciples are hiding out in the upper room. They're kind of cowering right now, right? They are afraid. They think that the crucifixion was a horrible end to the hopes that Jesus was the promised Messiah, and they don't know what to do. They are hiding out this impressive bunch of disciples. You've got to agree with me. If you look back through the the book of Mark, when you look at Jesus' ministry over the three years, that these disciples haven't exactly knocked the ball out of the park. I get that it's easy to point the finger, but let me just take you through a bit of a list of this, all right? One minute these disciples were men of incredible faith, and other times their faith was completely absent. They would jockey many times over who would be the greatest among them. In fact, even at the Last Supper, just before Jesus' execution, they would argue over who would be the greatest. you got to love that literally the day after Jesus feeds the 5,000 with a couple of loaves of bread and a handful of fish, the day after that, the disciples are on a road trip with Jesus, and they start arguing over whether or not they had brought enough bread to make it through the trip. Hello, were you, like, were you there yesterday? Did you kind of see what went down with the fish and the bread? Didn't get it. You could go list after list after list over all the ways that the disciples just didn't really impress. There's times when Jesus would be teaching a profound lesson and the disciples are kind of going, come again? 
these weren't the sharpest tools in the shed, guys. They were, if I'm Jesus, I'm looking at this goal, and I'd be thinking, man, did I choose the right disciples? One of the disciples would deny him. One of the disciples would betray him. And in the end, they would all abandon him. But did you hear the message of the angel? Go tell the disciples that Jesus wants to see you again. And it's not to deliver a message, hey, Jesus to the angel, you tell those women to pass on to the disciples, I am through with them. In fact, go tell those cowardly, faithless, no good ex-disciples that we're done. You couldn't get it, so I'm moving on. Go back to fishing. We're going to try this with another group of people because you couldn't hack the mustard. No, that's not the message of Jesus to the angel. No, Jesus tells the angel, please tell my disciples that I want to see them again. And you've got to love the nuance in the text as well. It's go tell the disciples and Peter. And if, again, if you haven't been with us through the whole series of Mark, you might miss the nuance that's in that, the, the grace and the beauty of that two-word addition. Go tell the disciples and Peter. You might remember at the Last Supper, Jesus is telling all of his disciples that it's going to get tough here pretty soon. In fact, he says that they're going to strike the shepherd and the sheep are going to scatter. He's saying, you guys are all going to run when it gets hard. And Peter, like he does, pipes up and he says, Lord, if everyone runs, I will not. I will not abandon you. Jesus looks at him in the eye and says, this very night, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And that's exactly what happens. In fact, it's even worse than that. If you look at your text closely, Mark 14, verse 71, Peter doesn't just deny Jesus, he curses Jesus. He calls down curses on his Lord in his denial. If there is a way to trade in your discipleship card member, right? If you're you're trying to say, I'm no longer a disciple, that's how you do it. Not just dissociating yourself with Jesus, but calling down curses on the guy you've been following for the last three years. That is to shred up your membership card right there. And that's what Peter did. But please notice that Jesus says, tell the disciples and Peter that I will see them in Galilee. Guys, it's almost as if all of heaven had watched Peter fall and all of heaven wanted to help him back up again. In fact, you have to believe that if these two words weren't added to the invitation and Peter, that Peter probably would have self-selected out when the word came to the disciples that Jesus wanted to see them again. Peter was probably feeling lower than a snake's belly at this time, and he would have said, Jesus wants to see his disciples. You guys go. That can't mean me. Not after what I said. Not after what I did. And I can relate to that. We've all said and done things that we're not proud of. We've all engaged in conduct that we're ashamed of. We've all are very conscious of times and we know we've been a disappointment to our Lord. In fact, if we're introspective about this, we do this more often than we would probably care to admit. And what's weird in this is that like Adam and Eve in the garden, when they take the forbidden fruit and they take a bite, their next immediate instinct was to hide from God. Do you remember that? And I think there's something in our reflex reaction that causes us to also hide from God when we're conscious of our guilt and of our shame. I don't know about you, but in my own life, when I know that I'm 
uh, behaving in a way that's inconsistent with the values of the faith that I hold to be true, I notice my prayer life drops off. I notice my Bible reading drops off because I'm conscious that God is disappointed in me. I think there's some of you in the room this morning that need to hear this clearly. Guys, if death is not the end, then your failure is not final either. Okay? Jesus wanted to see Peter again. Peter will be restored. Peter will be forgiven. In fact, Peter, the biggest failure of the bunch, will become the leader of the group because he drank deeply of grace. And this is not a one-off example. You can look all through your New Testament at examples of where Jesus has encounters with sinners, and there's a consistent drumbeat that goes throughout all of these encounters. So you go to John chapter 8, you see a woman who was caught in the act of adultery, probably drugged by her hair to the foot of Jesus with executioners standing by at the ready. And the executioners say, Rabbi, our laws are very clear. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. She is to be stoned. Jesus says, okay. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, rocks drop to the ground and the executioners go away. And after a while, Jesus looks down at the woman who's probably going like this. And he says, woman, where are those who condemn you? She says, they're gone. And he says, then neither do I condemn you. Grace. In the story of the prodigal son, Luke 15, we hear a story of Jesus teaching about the character, the love of God the Father. And we learn a story about how a son basically told his father he wished his father was dead because he demands his inheritance from dad. I don't know why, but the dad grants the wish. And the son takes off with his father's money and he goes and spends it on sinful living. And we don't know how much, long, how much later he comes to his senses, but we realize he discovers that he's living worse than his father's servants. He can't feed himself. He can't clothe himself. There's no shelter. And he kind of re- reasons, I'm going to go back to my dad. I'm going to ask him if he can just give me a job. I'm not worthy to be his son anymore, but I- I'm going to ask him if he might be able to let me work so I can at least have a, pl- a roof over my head. And he's probably rehearsing the speech over and over and over in his head of how he's going to approach his dad and what he's going to say first and what he's going to say second. And the story tells us when he finally gets home that the father sees him from a distance and runs to the son, wraps his loving arms around him and welcomes him home. Please note, the father does not interrogate the son. He doesn't cross-examine him on ingratitude, doesn't make, doesn't make sure his motives are pure before coming home and accepting him back. The father simply wraps his arms around the wayward son who was lost. Guys, God's heart is for the sinful. God's heart is for those who are far from him, and your sin cannot remove you from his love. In fact, God seeks you out. And if you have detached yourself from God, if you've removed yourself from his fellowship because you're aware of guilt and shame in your life, you need to know that God wants you back more than you want to be back this morning. It was not the end of the story for Peter. Let's move on to verse 8. It says, referring to the angel, referring to the women, it says, they went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I'm going to probably surprise some of you with this this morning. That's the end of the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark ends at verse 8. Now, before you think I've fallen off my rocker, because your Bible has verses 9 through 20, let me explain something to you. If you have a paper Bible, look closely at verses 9 through 20. You'll find there's a parenthesis around them. 
There's probably a bracket, maybe even a note in the margin. The note in the margin is going to say that verses 9 through 20 do not appear in our earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark. It seems that later scribes came along and added verses 9 through 20. Why did they do it? It's kind of a strange ending to the book of Mark without that. What we have are women that are running away from the tomb afraid and shocked, not saying anything to anyone. Period. End of gospel. It's kind of unresolved, isn't it? It's kind of a cliffhanger ending. What happened? We don't know. And so some scribes, kind of uncomfortable by this, decided, well, let's, let's just put a little addendum. Let's just add this on. But we have early manuscripts and we have later manuscripts, and we see that this little add-on was not in the early manuscripts. And so we put it in there, but we flag it as extra material that wasn't in the original manuscripts. What did the women do? Did, did they fail in their task as messengers? Did they actually not tell the disciples, as the text suggests, saying nothing to anyone? Or did they go and tell the disciples as they were commanded to do so by the angel? Well, I will tell you that we can know with certainty what the women did. We know exactly what the women did. Even if these later verses were never added to the gospel of Mark, even if no gospel, no other gospel had ever been written, if this is all we had, we know what the women did. You know how we know with certainty what the women did next? It's because we are here this morning talking about the resurrection. These women were the chosen first witnesses of this event. And they would become the first links in a chain that would reach all the way to you and to me. They were the first chosen eyewitnesses. Now, we look back on this encounter, this quiet encounter at the tomb on a Sunday morning, and we can see that it would be the spark that would ignite an explosion that would ripple throughout the entire Mediterranean world. The explosion, however, would not be felt immediately. It would start with a very quiet conversation between a group of women and an angel at basically a cave. It did not start loud, but it would become loud. In fact, this world-changing event would erupt in such a way that you will see the profundity of this explosion where we go next as a church. We're going to go from here as a church body to the book of Acts. We're going to study the explosion. We're going to look at what happened as this message went out, as we look at the birth of the early church and what this looked like and what this meant. And spoiler alert, I'm going to show you the cards a little bit here. When we get into the book of Acts, what you're going to find is that every sermon in the book of Acts is literally a sermon on the resurrection. It was the central truth being communicated by the early church. Every speaker got to this subject. Yeah, Jesus turned water into wine. That was cool. That wasn't the message of the book of Acts. He restored sight to the blind. Also cool. Not the focus of the book of Acts. The focus of the book of Acts was him conquering the grave. Because the implications of that event are far, far reaching. Okay? You need to realize that the, the depth of the impact of this resulted in the day of worship shifting from Saturday to Sunday. Right? The Jews had always worshipped on the, their day of rest. That day of worship changed because of the significance of this event. And guys, we need to realize that this is not just something kind of interesting, kind of cool, kind of historical. If Jesus rose from the grave bodily, if he overcame death, 
Now, the implications of this are far-reaching. They touch literally every aspect of our life. The resurrection is not just the answer to life after death. A proper understanding of it sends us back into the world to live in a completely renewed way. Give you some examples. When you look at what you value, what you hold uh, of, of value in your life, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, these are completely redefined when you understand and you believe the resurrection. The resurrection informs your relationships, how you approach your marriage, how you approach your family, your kids. These are all different when you understand the resurrection. The resurrection impacts how you handle pain and disappointment. What's your attitude towards loss and towards grieving? They're all different with a proper understanding of the resurrection. In fact, this central event of history also changes your pursuits and your ambitions, how you define success. When you think about what you're striving for, what real significance is, it's completely changed when you understand the significance of the resurrection. Church, if you understand the resurrection and you believe it to be true, it is an all-encompassing truth that affects every facet of your life. You literally cannot be the same again when you understand what happened on this Sunday morning. Now, I'm going to ask the worship band to come back out. We're going to close our time together with one more song. We're going to have one more song to wrap up our time together. And in this, uh, as we lead into this song, I want you to know as a church, we're going to verbally proclaim uh, what we believe to be true about the resurrection, and we're going to address how it changes us. And we're going to, I'm going to read some statements, five different statements as we go through this, and you're going to respond back to me with three words if you agree with me. I want you to say, after I cue you, I want you to say, he has risen. Okay? If you believe that Jesus rose from the grave on this Sunday morning and you believe that to be true in your heart, that's your part in this. You will respond back when I cue you by saying, he has risen. And say it like you mean it, guys. This is not a golf clap moment, okay? This is a world changer. The forgiveness of sins, right? Life everlasting, it is available because of of this. Would you stand with me as we wrap up our time together this morning? In this world, we grieve loss and we endure pain. But because Jesus was raised, we believe that every tear will be dried and he will make all things new. We believe this because he has risen. In this world, we are lonely. And so we numb our pain in unhealthy ways that wound other people. But because Jesus was raised, there is a day when our relational needs will be met and we will be fully and eternally satisfied. We can wait for this day because he has risen. In this world, we are anxious. We worry about food. We worry about our jobs, our health, our marriages, our children, our finances, our future. But we can rest in this because he has risen. In this world, our identities are pinned to things like our wealth, our talent, our intellect, our appearances, and our achievements. But because Jesus was raised, our true selves are securely rooted in Christ. So we feel neither pride nor shame in our new identity because we did not earn it and we cannot lose it. We have confidence in this because He has risen. In this world, death is a cruel destiny that spares none of us. 
It's a dark shadow that threatens us and mocks us. But because Jesus was raised, we know that death is just a doorway into real life. There will be a day when death will be swallowed up in victory and we will shout, Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? We know this because He has risen.